The sermon text is the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city. He placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. He said to them, I will give you all of these things if you will bow down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and just then angels came and served him. The Gospel of our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. What would you say is the most important conflict going on in our world today? Would you pick a worldwide struggle, like the global struggle against poverty? Would you maybe pick something here in this country, like the vicious political struggle between the right and the left, or the meltdown of American morality. Maybe you would pick one of the so-called wars that our society has chosen to wage, the war against drugs, the war against homelessness, the war against inadequate education. Maybe for you, the struggle that you would say is the most important right now is a lot closer to home. Maybe you are battling something like depression or a physical illness. Maybe you are in a relationship right now with a spouse or a child that's, that's very rocky and at the end of every day it just makes you feel like you're exhausted, like you've gone 12 rounds. It could be that for you the struggle is much more basic right now. It's just maybe to make ends meet or just to keep getting out of bed and just keep going every day. All of those struggles are important. There's no doubt about that. But if you did pick any of those conflicts any of those wars as the most important, you would be wrong. Because the truth is that the most important struggle that is going on in our world today is the one that has been raging ever since the third chapter of Genesis that we heard before. And that is the war for immortal human souls, including yours and mine. Our enemy has successfully convinced most of the people in this world, and sadly even most Christians, that this war isn't even real, that it's not really even going on, but it remains the most important struggle there is. And why? Because the war for our souls, that is the one conflict that has consequences that go beyond this world. It has consequences that last for eternity. And it is the scene in St. Matthew's Gospel that he sets for us, the eternal Son of God stepping onto the field and engaging Satan in war. The war for my immortal soul and yours. 
Now, these events in Matthew chapter 4 come right on the heels of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. At Jesus' baptism, he publicly steps into his role as the substitute for the entire human race. When Jesus goes out into the wilderness and battles Satan, he's not really doing it for himself. He's doing it for us. He's doing it in our place. And why do we need that? For the simple reason that every human being, from Adam in Genesis chapter 3 all the way down to you and me, has failed God's test of holiness. We fail the test to submit our entire mindset, our entire way of thinking, to what God says in his word. And if God says something in his word and I don't agree in my mind, I will submit my, my mind to his word and accept what he says. See, that's what Adam failed to do in the garden. God said one thing, and Adam in his mind went another way. And every human being has done it since. It is the test to conform our actions, what we do, to God's holy law and not to the desires of our sinful flesh. Again, the same basic thing that Adam failed to do in the garden, and every human being has failed to do since. Because we have failed that test of God's holiness, we needed Jesus the Holy Son of God, to step into the fight and conquer Satan for us. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now notice a couple of things here. The Holy Spirit is intentionally leading Jesus into the wilderness for the express purpose of Jesus facing temptation. Don't we sometimes think of temptation the way a dieter thinks of dessert? Just keep it away from me. Keep the cake out of the house and then I will not fail. And we think about temptation this way sometimes too. Just keep me away from certain people, keep me away from certain places, and then Satan will not be able to get me. Now, of course, we don't want to surround ourselves with unnecessary temptations. But that is a very simplistic and naive way to think of temptation because our enemy is very powerful and his greatest ally is actually inside of us. It is the sin in us, our sinful nature. So even if, theoretically, you could remove yourself from every bad influence in the world, you would still face temptation because you still have sin inside of you. But you see, Jesus, the Son of God, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have any sin. He doesn't have any sinful nature. So if he's going to be our substitute... He actually has to be led into that temptation so that he can fight it in our place. And in order to emerge victorious, he has to come out absolutely perfect. The second thing to notice is how different the circumstances are here than they were for Adam in the Garden of Eden. When Adam was tempted, he was in a beautiful garden surrounded by more food than he could ever possibly hope to eat. When Jesus is tempted, he is in the middle of nowhere, and he has gone 40 days and 40 nights without food. He is hungrier than anybody here could possibly imagine. And it's the basic human need for food that Satan attacks first. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. You see how simple this equation is? Jesus, you are God, plus Jesus, you are hungry, equals Jesus, make yourself some food. The temptation is so subtle, 
that you could miss it. I mean, what really would be wrong with the hungry Son of God making himself some food? Nothing at all, except for the most important thing of all, that the Heavenly Father has promised to provide Jesus with what he needs. Right now, it is the Father's will for Jesus to be hungry, to be physically weakened as he faces these temptations. When the time is right, the Father will feed him. But if Jesus jumps the gun on that, he will be sinning against the first commandment. Now, how does Satan work today to get you and me to doubt that God cares about us? Has uh, underemployment or unemployment ever led you to doubt that God cares and that he will provide? Would I ever obsessively check my investments because I have come to trust the stock market to provide for me more than I trust my Heavenly Father? Would we ever turn work or pay into an idol and then sacrifice time with family and friends, time in God's word on that altar? Once on a very long plane ride from Buffalo to Los Angeles, I was seated next to a whole life insurance salesman. Four and a half hours next to a life insurance salesman. Nothing against life insurance salesmen, and I understand salesmen got to sell. They got to do it to live, so it's fine. And this guy had a lot of heart, and he did not give up until we landed. And he started one of his various sales pitches. He started with this question. What is your most valuable asset? Now, you know the answer he's looking for. My earning potential, right? My ability to make money. And then he would go on to say, well, what happens if you lose that, right? Okay. This was an opportunity when he asked me that. I could have given him a wildly different and theologically correct answer. And if I had, it may have led to a very productive spiritual discussion for the remainder of the flight. But instead... I just gave him the answer he was looking for because it's so much easier to just go along with the way the world thinks about things that our talent, our energy, our ability is more valuable than the Father's promise to take care of us. Now Jesus, he trusts that the Heavenly Father is going to give him what he needs and he trusts it perfectly and he sees right through the insidious little lie that Satan has laid in this trap, and Jesus takes it down, not with an army of angels, but with the sword of the Spirit. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. Jesus understands that a mountain of bread, all the bread in the world, is not going to keep him alive if the Heavenly Father does not want him to live. And on the other hand, if the Father wants him to live he'll hold out another 40 days and 40 nights without food. Food or no food, our lives are in God's hands. Jesus understands that and he trusts it perfectly. It is hard to imagine that kind of faith in the care of the Heavenly Father, but we don't have to imagine it. It is real. Jesus had it and he had it for us. That perfect trust gets credited to us through faith in the Son of God. Not only that, but in Jesus, we do have that kind of trust in the Father in our hearts. Not perfectly like the Son of God, but we have it too. So now may God help us to show it like our Savior Jesus. And at the end of round one in the wilderness, it's the Son of God, one, and the Father of lies, zero. Then the devil took him to the holy city 
He placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, the trap here is very subtle. It could be easy to miss because does God not promise to send his angels to protect his people? Yes, of course he does. But here Satan is doing one of his favorite tricks. He's actually quoting God's word, but he's doing it the way that the devil and a lot of other liars like to do it. He's quoting it incompletely, and he's twisting it out of its context. He's leaving out a very important little line at the end of that verse. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Psalm 91 is God promising protection to his people when they are going about doing his will. When they are going out about the daily work of doing the business of their heavenly father. Not when they're flinging themselves off of a temple or taking any other unnecessary risks to challenge God to see if he will really spring into action. Jesus understands that the temptation here is to put that promise of his father to the test. But of course, you know, we would never test God to take care of us in ways that he hasn't promised, right? Actually, Christians can, and we often do put God to the test. God does not promise long life to Christians who take unnecessary risks with their health. He never promises to send his angels to protect me if I go out and drive like a maniac. He doesn't promise to put food on the table for people who do not want to work. And yet Christians often do test God in these ways. Jesus does not. Jesus answered, again, it is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. Jesus understands the Father's promise is not to send an angel with a giant catcher's mitt to grab him if he does a header off the temple. He will use the stairs to go down because there are stairs. And yet, it is worth noting too that during his life, Jesus does trust the Father to protect him in the ways that the Father has promised to do it. When Jesus is simply going about his Father's will, doing his Father's business, then he has this total calm trust that the Father will take care of him. You know, you see that on the stormy Sea of Galilee when Jesus is sleeping, totally calm, while his disciples, who are seasoned sailors, are panicking. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' perfect trust of his Father when he prays, not my will, but yours be done. And you even see it when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's flattened by the hammer of God's wrath that we should have received. With his dying breath, Jesus calmly, submissively commits his life to the hands of his heavenly Father, confident that he's going to get it back the next day. So Jesus refused to put his Father to the test, but he did trust his Father to take care of him in the ways he has promised. And he did it for us. And after round two in the wilderness, it is the Lord of Lords two and the Lord of the Flies zero. Finally, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, I will give you all these things if you will bow down and worship me. Right, so the first two temptations, the trap was pretty subtle. This time you would have to be asleep to miss the trap. Satan is actually tempting Jesus to convert, to become a Satanist. A 
Why would that temptation hold any appeal at all to the Son of God? Because Satan is offering Jesus a path to glory, a shortcut to glory, that does not require blood and tears and suffering and death. And by the way, this is the same basic maneuver that the devil used on Adam in the garden. Here, glory, fast and easy. Just eat this fruit and you'll have glory just like God. Now what shortcuts to glory has Satan highlighted along the path of your life? Marriage is very hard work. So when it is hard, why not just take a shortcut? Look for happiness with someone else. Satan still tries these things because they work, and he keeps at it. Uh, raising a child to fear, trust, and know the Lord, that is really hard work. It takes a lot of time, so why not take a shortcut and just let the church do all that work for you? Going into work to an underappreciated job day after day after day after day is really, really hard. So why not just take a shortcut and slack off? Honest repentance is humbling. It is even embarrassing. So why not find a church where they'll tell you you can do whatever you want and God will love you just the way you are? Now, whatever the shortcut to glory is, we should understand why it is not an overstatement to call this way of thinking satanic. This is actually the sin that Satan committed when he tried to knock God off the throne of heaven and seize all the glory for himself. It's the tactic he used in the Garden of Eden and the one he tried on Jesus in the wilderness. But Jesus resists it. He is going to stay true to the path to glory that his heavenly Father has laid out for him, even though it is much harder. Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus holds out against this third, and in my opinion, most appealing temptation. He's going to take the path to glory that the Father has laid out, even though that will require him to pass through rejection, betrayal, and suffering, and death. That is the way that the battle in the wilderness ends. And the way this battle ends gives us a pretty good idea of how the war is going to end on Good Friday on a hill outside Jerusalem. At the end of this, it's Jesus 3 and the devil 0. On Good Friday, Jesus is going to win again, and he is going to win for good. So, there you have your manual, your handbook, on how to battle and beat Satan's temptation. Step one is to know your Bible as well as the Son of God. So we probably all have some work to do in that department. Step two is to recognize the kinds of traps that Satan uses. Sometimes they're very subtle. Sometimes they're very bold. Just leave God and follow me. He likes to twist scripture and quote it incompletely when he tempts us. And step three is to take the truth of God's word, the sword of the spirit, and use it to shred Satan's lies and his deceits. Just do that. And you also will be victorious over temptation. And that is all very true. But there is a lot more to it than that. If you leave here this morning thinking, all Jesus did for you out in that wilderness was show you how to beat temptation, then this has been a failure. Jesus is doing a lot more than giving us a good example. Although he is definitely doing that too.
Jesus is doing this. He is fighting and winning for us. Perfect trust in his heavenly Father, even as he is famished. That is how he starts his saving work for us. And now he continues it all the way to Calvary's cross, where he will pay for our sins. Through faith, his perfect obedience is yours. The victory he won, he won for you. And that is exactly why, as we leave here this morning and we return to our own battlefields, to our own struggles, we must never give up. We don't have to be afraid of Satan. We can take him down the way that the Son of God did because Jesus did it. He did it for us to win the war for our souls. Amen.